Hey man, we're with Billy Carson on Facebook and What I am saying is to increase your plant base, your plant foods into your dietary consumption to increase your energy. Okay, I've um, said anyway, this. We're going to back up. All my we're going to back it's up. It's pretty crazy. Um, and so eventually they got everything working and they documented this thing, but he decided he was going to talk about it no matter what. And I'm glad he did. There's actually a documentary which should be on Forbidden Knowledge TV called The Baltic Sea Anomaly, in which I actually am in that documentary talking about this object along with many other researchers. And uh, so it's definitely well worth a watch. You can check it out on, on uh, 4BK.TV. When you get there, just look up The Baltic Sea Anomaly, and you'll be able to hear a lot more about this. Um, I'm going to see if I can actually show you a picture of it right now. For those of you who have never seen this thing, I'm trying to share, create a slide right now, and I'm going to try to share a slide to you real quick so you can check it out. And have a look at it for the first time if you have never seen this object. It's pretty incredible. I've done lectures and workshops. I've talked about it in my Egyptian mystery school. These are remnants of ancient Bamanas, flying craft that used to fly over the earth in ancient times. And according to the Indian Vedas, the Mahabharata, and some of these ancient texts, these, they call them flying cities, would have battles in the sky. Okay, they would battle in the sky. And here is the Baltic Sea Anomaly. This is it right here. This is an official image, mainstream image that had made news globally. And you can see here that it has geometry. Uh, that you can't see the skid mark from this image, but you can kind of see it where it's from the right side where it, it almost looks like a trilobite. The, the gray, <laughs> that line, that is the spot. It slid into this location here, and this is not a rock. This is something that is intelligently designed. It's at the bottom of the Baltic Sea, and uh, it's most likely, in my personal opinion, a remnant of an ancient civilization that was uh, high tech on this planet. with each other, which evidence of that war can be found all over this planet. In Egypt, in Mohenjo-Daro, and other places, you can tell by the sand, the way that we have glass in the sand. It's a, it's a, it's a side effect of 3,000 plus degree temperature Libya. weapons fire. Libya has and a... this object may have been one of those flying cities that got into a battle and didn't turn out too good for them. They crashed in the Baltic Sea and sunk to the bottom. So... This is the Baltic Sea Anomaly. If you've never heard of it or never seen it, this is it right here, guys. All right? Pretty cool. So thanks for that question.
I spent 99 stars. By the way. What's going on? Anyway, welcome back to the uh, Christopher Governator Show, and thank you for 10,000 listening listens on Justice Podcast. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Um, so I cover all the pro democracy podcasts. Midas Touch, Lincoln Project, Mariel Trump Show. Glenn Kirshner because justice matters and Michael Cohen's podcast this is my man Cooper oh baby don't laugh at me if you tell my thought don't grab me take my time now stop on me this my man Cooper hashtag legal AF and um bullet work Podcast, The New Abnormal of the Daily Beast, The Young Turks, uh, Occupied Democrats, The Democrats, I also go on live sessions and, and some, I've been known to crash, Department of Defense, <laughs> Secretary of State, uh, White House briefings, and Call on them to lock up all the criminals, so please write these numbers down. Uh, call all three branches of government and demand insurrection charges, especially the Department of Justice, because they can bring charges. They can indict. January 6th. Okay, here we go. Sorry about that. In my mind, I, I don't see this as a rock at all. This is pretty amazing. Okay? <laughs> this is pretty amazing. This is a great anomaly. Um, you can see it's on this shelf here at the bottom of the Baltic Sea. You can clearly see that it's intelligently designed. All right. So um, you guys should be able to hear me now. My mic is hot. All right. This is some crazy stuff. This is some crazy stuff. So great question there. That was a great question. All right. Great question. All right. Let me get this out of here and go back to my screen. I know I lost audio for a quick second, but I'm back. All right. Let's see what we got here. billionaire billy thanks for your love for the people is there any way is there a way to know if you are a anunnaki descendant here on earth well that's a good question now what's interesting is this every single person on earth has some anunnaki dna in their body and the reason why is because when they if you look at this read the sumerian tablets and the adrahasis and the um also the enuma elish they talk about fashioning a man by and by taking an existing hominid on this planet, which was our cousin that we're already here. Hominids, not Homo sapien yet, but intelligent hominids that look very similar to us. But then what they did was they genetically modified them. They added their essence to them, which means that they added their DNA. They genetically added something that they had to the first Adamu, which means first man that ISIS gave birth to. So 
So they took the uh, uh, egg out of an existing hominid female, and they cleaned out some of the genetic material. They added their essence to that um, that egg. They inserted it into Isis' womb. She actually wanted to give birth to Adamu, which means first man, the first Homo sapien at a higher level. They had been using clones before then. They got tired of using clones because clones couldn't reproduce. So Isis said, I'm going to give birth to one of these, and they're going to be able to duplicate on their own uh, sexually. So she inserted that egg into her womb. This is what we call in modern-day biology and science. We call this making something called a zygote. And, you know, this is uh, what they did. They inserted it into her womb. She she went 10 months term, gave birth to Adamu. There's a famous cylinder scroll of her holding up Adamu in the sky and saying that, you know, with my hands have made it, have made him. And so uh, hmm. that was the first homo sapiens sapien. wasn't the first person because there were already a lot of people on the planet. But the first homo sapiens sapien at that time. And that's when the generations of ISIS began the birth of Adamu. That's where generations of Isis, generations of Isis, Genesis, Genesis, Genesis. Genesis in the Bible is the beginning of the generations from Isis, just in case you didn't know. Okay? Great question. question here. I'm going to answer this question. Vernon Peoples, Billy, is eating meat healthy for your, for you, and do meat eating lower your vibration? Very, very good question. This is a topic I'm going to be talking on extensively, extensively, and bringing a lot of science. I'm working on a whole show about this. Okay, I'm going to be very transparent with everyone here. For those of you who don't know, some of y'all know already, but some of you may have not, do not know. First of all, when I talk about manifestation and manifesting things, I talk about the fact that during that manifestation process, you may want to be on a more of a plant-based diet. I, and I always say, if you watch my workshops, I say I'm not telling everyone to go vegan. What I am saying is to increase your plant-based, your plants' foods into your dietary consumption to increase your energy. Okay, I've said this over the years in all of my manifestation workshops. I believe that a good balance of plant-based along with uh, your proteins that you're eating is very, very healthy. Now, take me, for example. I was a, basically a vegan for about 30 years, okay, plus. Um, and what happened to me, I started, what, it's the same thing that happens to a lot of vegans, that you'll see they, they, they get very quiet because they start getting very sick. They're very bolsterous at first and all excited, but then they start, getting, they start losing their teeth, they start losing their hair, they start getting uh, sucked in and drawn in. Their faces get drawn in. Your bones start showing. This happened to me. I got I have pictures of me looking like this. Uh, I started getting really sick, uh, and I developed an autoimmune problem where I would get these rashes and these allergic reactions to almost everything. And uh, couldn't nobody could figure out what was going on. I couldn't figure out what was going on. Found out that I had eaten so much uh, of 
way the style that I was eating is vegan, that the lectins inside the plants were actually attacking my body. Wow. My body didn't have enough defense to defend against these lectins. Plants have a defense, self-defense me- mechanism called lectins in the deep greens. And the deep greens were and my favorite food was kale and spinach. But the kale and spinach, I, I, I had eaten so much kale and spinach over the years, my body actually had an adverse reaction. I developed an allergic, an allergic an allergy to kale and spinach. Amazing. As they began to attack my body. <laughs> and because I was completely unaware of that's what was going on, I just kept consuming and consuming and consuming and getting sicker and sicker and sicker. Not sicker with like a cold, didn't have a cold. Uh, it was giving me these autoimmune responses. The doctors kept telling me, oh, you just have contact dermatitis. We don't know what it is. It's just something you touched or something you ate. We, you got to start re- ruling things out. I went and got a pin prick test and a blood test and all this other stuff, and they were trying to figure out what I could be possibly allergic to. For whatever reason, they don't test for the lectins. They don't test for the deep greens, the kale, the spinach, um, you know, broccoli and things like that, which are some of my favorite foods that I was consuming the most of because they were really making me feel like I was full, especially kale and broccoli. It fills up in your stomach. You feel like you're full. You feel satisfied, especially if not eating any other kind of meat or anything. And so I began, began to get really, really ill. Uh, my weight yeah. dropped. I'm six foot four. For you, those yeah. of you who don't know... <laughs> I'm not a small guy. I'm six foot four. Right now, I'm 225 pounds. I had dropped all the way to to 175 pounds at one point. Now, at my height, that's like a stick man. And you can see the evidence of this if you watch some videos on Mm -hmm. Gaia from some of the older shows. You'll see that I was extremely thin. My face was thin. My, my, My cheekbones were sticking out. Um, and I looked a lot older, actually. It made me age. It looked it made me look older. I actually aged in reverse uh, since then, since I changed my diet plan. So it's very dangerous to uh, take on a diet without doing the research on it first. It's very dangerous. And I didn't take on this diet because I was trying to save animals or nothing. I just was afraid at that time to eat meat. When I was younger, I was afraid to swallow it. And so it just developed into this gradual progression of becoming a vegan. And, um, afraid to swallow but it. I learned something. I learned a very valuable lesson as I beca- as I had gotten so sick, I couldn't even do one push-up a few mm-hmm. years ago. And my sister came to help save my life. She's a four-time world champion bodybuilder and a, a licensed nutritionist. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. so found out that I had to get a blood panel. Everyone should get a blood panel before they go on any diet. Any diet. I don't care what the diet is. You need to go get a blood panel. Go to LabCorp in your local area, wherever you go, wherever your country or city is. Go to a local place so you can draw your blood and get you a blood a blood panel that shows you every single uh, mineral, nutrient, high level, low level, whatever you're deficient in, in your blood. Take that blood work to a licensed dietitian or nutritionist and have them analyze it and have them create a customized diet just for you. Once oh. I did that, my autoimmune problem, reverse significantly and not gonna it's never gonna be at zero it's never gonna be at zero I'm still gonna have allergies and allergic reactions to things and situations but i got it down to a very minimum it, had, it was so bad once at once i was getting allergic reactions and rashes 24 7 i got it down to a minimum we're bringing on people that to talk about this that have experiences experienced this as well once i got it down to a minimum the next thing that i had to do was um continue working out, working on this diet and exercising, working out. I was able to start getting my strength back, getting my weight back to where I am right now. You know, I'm back to benching 250 pounds, you know, running up and down the court, 
you know, I could still dunk the basketball and everything else. I had lost all that. All that was gone. And so even today, now my biggest things that I can eat are asparagus and some other plant-based things that don't have as much lectins as others, or some of the vegetables that are low in vitamin A because I built up an allergy to high vitamin A. But I definitely still adjust my diet based on what I'm doing consciously to incorporate some of the things that I can consume that are high energy, along with the proteins that I eat now. And so it's all about getting a customized diet. And what you will find from a lot of people that are not doing this vegan diet thing the right way, which is almost impossible to do because you have to take so many supplements and so many extra things that you don't even, you didn't even know you had to take, uh, it's going to end up uh, putting you in a bad situation. And these are the topics that a lot of people don't want to talk about because they get sucked in and then they feel like, oh, if I don't do it anymore, I'm going to be frowned upon. But I'm going to tell you this, man. Your life is more important than what people think. <laughs> Period, point blank. And so I'm doing a whole science show. I'm bringing science to it. A science show. We're working on it now. I can't wait. That show is coming with testimonials and everything else from people that were going through the same problem that I went through. Photographs and pictures of the autoimmune responses and everything else. It's going to be a very, very in-depth uh, show, and you're not going to want to miss that. I'll tell you when it's coming out, but it will be very, very soon. And it's something that you don't want to miss. Okay, you don't want to miss. So thanks a lot, Vernon, for that great question. All right, let's see what else we got. Let's see here. All right. So many questions here, but I put Vernon's up. A lot of them went to the bottom. Okay, let me look here. There we go. This stuff is moving too fast. Hold on, guys. <laughs> Here's another good question. Rocky Martinez. Okay, Billy, do you know anything about the new Earth coming 5D? Now, there's a there's this push going on with a lot of the um, and, and not a lot, it's in the conscious community by some of the some of the speakers or some of the people that are considered to be leaders. We're trying to tell everybody that there's a earth, a new earth coming. We're going to go into 5D. I don't know if they either don't understand exactly what they're saying or they are purposefully misleading people into understanding something different. Yes, there's a 5D consciousness that we're heading into, but it's not a literal 5D. It's not, in other words, the earth isn't going to phase out of 3D and turn into a 5D earth. And this is something, I don't know if that's the question that you had in particular, but. This is a question I get a lot. A lot of people keep asking me this question, uh, but they, they seem to be, when I ask them a little bit about what they're trying to say, they seem to be under the understanding that we're going to somehow phase shift out of this dimension into a higher dimension. That's actually not going to happen, okay? Because you can't leave the, the third dimension and move into the fifth dimension in a physical form. The Unless Earth is you ascend. From the, from the third to the fifth. Now, what does happen is your consciousness is multidimensional. We are all multidimensional beings, every single one of us. Our consciousness is streaming in from a higher dimension as it streams down through all the different densities until it gets to the third density. And then it is, uh, it, it's picked up, the signal, the frequency is picked up by your avatar body and encapsulated into this avatar body so that you can actually animate it 
moving around in the third dimension and navigate and gain information, process information, and that information that you process through your life living is transmitted back to source. Your whole life is all about data collection. That's all you do. We're all here, no matter what your experience is, happy, sad, glad, whatever the, whatever the case may be, your whole life experience from the time you're born to the time you die is all about collecting information and sending information back to source. So that source can understand every aspect of life and what it means to be you, me, and everything else, a blade of grass or rock, whatever. And But what we have here, what we have going on here is understanding that people, the people on this planet, all of us, are slowly becoming more and more awakened and conscious of who we truly are and the true power and the fact that we are multidimensional. And when we hit that, what I call the 100th monkey effect, which is a scientific experiment that was done that showed that once you reach the 100th monkey with any type of a learning lesson, it spreads like wildfire to other monkeys. They all begin to duplicate the same activity. For example, they had a monkey that was washing its, its, um, its food in the, in the river. And it taught it to some, another monkey, another monkey, another monkey, so forth and so on. Till eventually, when it got to the 100th monkey that learned his technique, nobody else had to learn it. It spread instantaneously, consciously, to every monkey on the planet. And they all, globally, started doing the same thing at the same exact time after the 100th. Same thing is going to happen in consciousness. In this community, as we build and become smarter, wiser, and ascend to a higher level of understanding, so many when a, a specific number of people hit that level the whole planet goes conscious just like that so that's the number we're trying to get to but what is that number we don't know but we're going to get there and that is what the 5d consciousness represents okay all right so great question Kingdom. 
was Enki. Who saved uh, Noah? It was Enki. Uh, you know, who, uh, this is just Enki is the one doing all the private secret interactions and trying to keep mankind going, and Lil is the one that keeps trying to take them down. Population and he thinks that the people are getting too loud. He would just have his, his guards go and kill off the people. He would dry out their crops so they could starve to death. You know, he said the humans are making too much noise. You know, kill them. He would just kill people like they were nothing. They meant nothing to him. So, and Lil is actually Satan. That's where they worship. All right. Good question. Right, Nigel, eat according to your blood type. And I'm going to do a whole show on that. A whole show. And I'm bringing all the science with me. Alright? Alright, let's see. Let's these questions. Cosmo, Mac, Divine Insight. What about an all-fruit diet? An all-fruit diet is dangerous. Very, very dangerous, Okay. Uh, this is going to be part of my talk. I know there's a lot of people that are online right now um, talking about, um, you know, eating only fruits. You know, you got these fruitologists and so forth. Um, it's, man, it, it's so much bad. There's so much. I'm not trying to, I don't want to put anybody down because everybody has their thing that they believe in. But a lot of these guys have no real science behind what they're talking about. A lot of it's just fabricated information, okay? Um, and so, if, if you have, if you're eating an all-fruit diet, you're putting yourself in a very bad situation. You're going to be deficient of a lot of vitamins. You're going to have low B12, low calcium, low vitamin D, low iodine. You're going to have low omega-3 fatty acids. Um, you can, it can lead you to what I started getting: anemia, tiredness, lethargy, and also immune dysfunction, which is one of my biggest, one of my biggest problems. Alright, um, as I converted out from, you know, not eating as much of the kale and the, uh, and the spinach, I thought, well, maybe I can substitute with more fruit. The more fruit I ate, the sicker I got anyway. And, uh, all my levels were, you know, I was almost like osteoporosis. That's how bad my, my levels were in my body for, uh, vitamin D. And you're not going to get it from milk. And you're sure not going to get it from fruit. So eating an all-fruit diet could put you in a very, very bad situation. So I don't recommend it, and I'm not a doctor. All I can tell you is you need to get a blood panel and go see a dietitian and get a specialized diet made just for your body. Okay? That's what we need to do.
you go back, if you were able to rewind the geological time clock, you discover that based on tectonic plate movement, the movement of the plates of the crust of the earth over the magma, used to be you discover that plate. Antarctica was actually closer to the equator. How do we know this? We know this because the ice caps are melting. Antarctica ice is melting right now, and it has been for quite some time. And guess what we're finding in Antarctica? We're finding animals that were flash frozen. Animals that were flash frozen. How can that happen? That means that when the tectonic plates shifted, the landmass moved from equator to a northern position extremely fast. Okay? Extremely fast. Creating two problems. One, a global flood. Because when you move that much mass, you're going to displace liquid. And that displaced liquid washed over the land creates a global flood. flood. Global floods don't come from rain. They come from land masses shifting. Okay? The second thing that you have is uh, every animal, plants, and everything else are flash frozen. Now, what more evidence do we have of this besides the way that they've been preserved? When they do an autopsy on these uh, these deceased animals and they cut them open, guess what they find? Undigested food in their stomachs. The food in their stomachs is not digested, which means they were frozen very, very fast. Which means that they came from an area that was much more, much warmer, uh, more tropical before it shifted to that location. How do you know it was and the equator, though? And they're also finding a lot of crazy things under the ice, remnants of ancient civilizations that were just now start, are just now starting to be seen. So Antarctica is really an amazing place, um, and there's going to be so many amazing discoveries coming out of that place. It's just up to whether they decide to disclose them to us or not. Now, what's interesting is if you look at a satellite image of Antarctica, you can do that on Google Earth, Go to Google Earth, you can look at a satellite image, and you can see all the, uh, around this particular area on Antarctica, you can see all the research bases there around this huge opening in the ice, about a 35-meter opening. In the background, you can see what looks like a pyramid, okay, but uh, still has a, the top, the apex on top. And you see the, every country there, they're doing some type of research. It's a no-war zone. And also, whose research facility is down there? A place that is not a country. It's called the Rockefeller Foundation. They have their own research facility down there as well. What are they researching? Who are they researching? Who are they talking to? you got to remember, Buzz Aldrin from the Apollo missions, he was down there a few years ago. And he something scared him. He actually made a tweet that said, we are facing the ultimate evil. So something that he saw down there with what they were doing, who they were communicating with, gave him the inkling that we were facing something very evil, and he tweeted that. And then they rushed him out of there, and they made him delete the tweet, but by then, millions of people had already screenshotted it was too late. And he said, oh, he's just sick. Okay, yeah, he's just sick. It's not like you just wanted to shut up. So Antarctica is a very interesting place. There's a lot of hidden secrets there, but Antarctica is, a, is there because of a result of a pole shift of the crust of the Earth.
be still. Do we really have three sons? We actually don't have three sons. We have two. We live in a um, in a binary solar system. Binary, which we have two. Our yellow sun, it looks yellow from Earth, but in truth, reality of space is actually white. But the, because of light um, diffraction, all right, the way that light comes through the atmosphere and then the light is, is fractalized and broken apart, you, you, you may primarily see the yellow color. However, uh, there's another sun out there that orbits our sun, and that sun is a brown dwarf. And that brown dwarf has planets orbiting it. This is now mainstream, known, well-known science. It's not pseudoscience. It's not something I made up. It's actually in the astrophysics books now. There's another, uh, there's another object orbiting our sun with planets orbiting it. It's in the, it's in the um, inner Oort cloud zone. Is what they call it in astrophysics, the inner Oort cloud zone. But it's beyond the orbit of Pluto, and it orbits our sun every 4,200 years. There's a planet orbiting it that's four to six times larger than Earth. This is the famed Nibiru from the ancient Sumerian tablets in the Enuma Elish. Okay? It does exist, and it's out there, still orbiting until this very day. And what we found out in astrophysics is binary star systems are common. It's actually rare that you have a single star in a solar system. It's actually extremely rare. Binary and trinary star systems are actually more common than not. Okay, good question. David Lyell, love the 100 monkey effect. It needs to be taught in school. I agree 100%. I'm gonna do a whole little show on the 100 monkey effect, or maybe a short, a movie short, like a video short, something. <laughs> start 3000 BC and why does it count down to zero then up to the current year? What year did the current timeline start at? The current timeline, uh, well we have records that show way back, we have we can go all the way back to um, I don't know if you're talking about human timelines or if we're talking about the historical timelines that we have, but we go back way beyond 3000 BC. I mean, we go all the way back to now, we go back to Tepe, we go back to 13,000 BC. We know that we have fossils that go back millions of years. We have sea fossils, sea fossils uh, that we found in the mountaintops showing that there was a global flood. And we could date those fossils back millions, multi millions, sometimes 20, 30, 40 million years ago. Uh, so we have, you know, records or accounts that we can look back and say, hey, there was life on this planet X amount of millions of years ago. But we know for a fact, for example, Gobekli Tepe, in terms of human habitat, you know, inhabitants, we can go back.
feed us 13,000 years. If we want, um, you know, uh, written written evidence, we can go back to the Emerald Tablets. That's 36,000 years B.C. So we have a, a pretty long way to go. Now, why did it go to zero? It goes to zero because of Christ. So Yeshua, or known as a.k.a. Jesus Christ, once he died, they started the whole year system over again from zero, building up one, two, three, so forth and so on. And so that's because they're now basing time, they're basing the dates on a period of marker in time. And so they're saying the death of Christ marks zero, and moving forward, we're now A.D. after death. Okay, that's how it works. What is the real story of Jesus? That's a huge question. That's a question I could take. I could talk about that for 20 hours. <laughs> uh, what's interesting is I'll just give you a quick breakdown. Yeshua is the man's name. Yeshua, that's his actual name, which is not, it's not Jesus. Jesus is actually a, 
a name that didn't exist till more modern times, and the J didn't even exist as well. So it was really Jesus, and Jesus means Hail Zeus. That's actually the definition of the name, Hail Zeus. Christians will adamantly deny that, but that's not that the facts remain. That's exactly what it means, as they used to worship Zeus back in the day. Uh, and so anyway, that's besides the point. Jesus was born at virgin birth. Now his mother, Mary, uh, you know, interestingly is her mother was also born of a virgin birth. Now this is something that nobody ever talks about. Nobody ever teaches you this in Bible study. Nobody ever does this. Why? They don't want you to know. Number one, number two, they don't even know half the time probably. If you go to the Apocrypha text, you discover that Mary's mother was a virgin birth. Why is this significant? It shows that some type of in vitro fertilization technique was being used in ancient times and to create a specific bloodline. Mary's mother came down that line and then Mary and then she gave birth to Yeshua. Now what's interesting, if you look at a lot of these records or accounts of quote unquote mythology in the Greek myths, they talk about these uh, virgin births as well. Yeshua wasn't the only person to come from a virgin birth. There were many, many of these people that were born from virgin births. They all have very, very similar stories. They're all demigods. They're half human, half, uh, not really a god that creates the universe, but they're half uh, advanced being. In this case, Yeshua is half Anunnaki and half human, right? More direct to the bloodline that way. Uh, and now, what's interesting is when he turns, uh, uh, he turns 12, he disappears out of the Bible. But where does he go? There's a very little-known text named the Gospel of the Holy Twelve, where he actually he actually goes to Egypt to learn the Egyptian mysteries. He then goes to Tibet to learn healing with his hands and Reiki and, and Qigong. And then he ends up going down to India to learn the mystic arts. And he's teaching reincarnation, uh, really is his primary uh, teaching that he had, reincarnation, because really, if you're, in essence, that's what the Bible actually is teaching anyway, where they just kind of shielded it from you in a way that or worded it in a way that you didn't understand it because talking about getting a new body and a new name and all that kind of stuff but regardless uh he's teaching reincarnation he reappears in the modern day bible coming on the back of the donkey claiming to be the messiah according to the biblical text the bible says i call my son out of egypt that's when he reappears then coming into jerusalem on the back of a of a donkey at age of 32 uh, age of 32 i believe and so but uh, in the Sinai Bible, which predates the modern King James Bible, he was never crucified, not even not even crucified. And what more recently, they discovered the book of Jesus's wife, which is at the Harvard Seminary. And this proves that he also got married. And so I don't believe he was ever crucified whatsoever. I don't believe it's just a farce made up by the Romans, uh, you know, Catholic Church and more another way to uh, to just pimp the people. I don't believe any crucifixion actually ever even occurred. I believe that the man lived, had children, and I think that his bloodline is called the Merovingian bloodline. And the Merovingian bloodline is still walking the planet till this very day. Okay? So it's an interesting story. I mean, I can talk about it for a very, very long time. Uh, but he yeah, is uh, a, what they would call a demi. He's half Anunnaki. He's coming out of a virgin birth through in vitro fertilization, along with his grandmother. Uh, and uh, he was put here to accomplish a mission, trying to raise consciousness, but it got twisted and turned dark really, really quick. And
people in positions of power twisted it all around for control and dominance. And his message got stifled. The message was, we are gods, you are gods. As a matter of fact, he never said that he was going to return. You know, half the time, probably. If you go to the Apocrypha text, you discover that Mary's mother was a virgin birth. Why is this significant? It shows that some type of in vitro fertilization technique was being used in ancient times. And to create a specific bloodline, Mary's mother came down that line, and then Mary, and then she gave birth to Yeshua. Now, what's interesting, if you look at a lot of these records or accounts of quote-unquote mythology in the Greek myths, they talk about these uh, virgin births as well. Yeshua wasn't the only person to come from a virgin birth. There were many, many of these people that were born from virgin births. They all have, all have very, very similar stories. They're all demigods. They're half human, half... Uh, not really a god that creates the universe, but they're half uh, advanced being. In this case, Yeshua is half Anunnaki and half human. Right? More direct to the bloodline that way. Uh, and now... What's interesting is when he turns uh, uh, he turns 12, he disappears out of the Bible. But where does he go? There's a very little-known text named the Gospel of the Holy Twelve, where he actually he actually goes to Egypt to learn the Egyptian mysteries. He then goes to Tibet to learn healing with his hands and Reiki and, and Qigong. And then he ends up going down to India to learn the mystic arts. And he's teaching reincarnation, uh, really is his primary uh, teaching that he had, reincarnation, because really, if you're, in essence, that's what the Bible actually is teaching anyway, where they just kind of shielded it from you in a way that, or worded it in a way that you didn't understand it. It's talking about getting a new body and a new name and all that kind of stuff. But regardless, uh, he's teaching reincarnation. He reappears in the modern-day Bible, coming on the back of the donkey, claiming to be the Messiah, according to the biblical text. The Bible says, I call my son out of Egypt. That's when he reappears then, coming into Jerusalem on the back of a, of a donkey at age of 32, age of 32, I believe. And so, but uh, in the Sinai Bible, which predates the modern King James Bible, he was never crucified, not even, not even crucified. And what more recently, they discovered the book of Jesus's wife, which is at the Harvard Seminary, and this proves that he also got married. And so I don't believe he was ever crucified whatsoever. I believe it's just a farce made up by the Roman, uh, you know, Catholic Church, and more another way to uh, to just pimp the people. I don't believe any crucifixion actually ever even occurred. I believe that the man lived, had children, and I think that his bloodline is called the Merovingian bloodline, and the Merovingian bloodline is still walking the planet till this very day. Okay, so it's an interesting story. I mean, I could talk about it for a very, very long time. Uh, but he is uh, a, what they would call a demi. He's half human and half Anunnaki. He's coming out of a virgin birth through in vitro fertilization, along with his grandmother. Uh, and uh, he was put here to accomplish a mission, trying to raise consciousness, but it got twisted and turned dark really, really quick. And unfortunately, it turned into a what they call a crap, I don't want to use the S word, but a crap show. Uh, and they... Uh, they turned this thing into a whole thing that it wasn't supposed to be, unfortunately. people The people in positions of power twisted it all around for control and dominance. And his message got stifled. The message was, we are gods. You are gods. As a matter of fact, he never said that he was going to return. He said that Christ would return, which is the Christ consciousness. There were many Christs before Jesus Christ. Christ have existed for eons. 
it's a level of awareness and consciousness. It's an ascended mentality. And when they ascended mentality, when that returns back to the planet, that's the second coming. It has nothing to do with a man coming back in the physical form and, and people bowing down and all this other kind of crazy foolishness that they made up. All right, next question.
hope they weren't black because it's embarrassing. I really, it's really embarrassing. I want no affiliation with these psychos. And then he tells the guy, if you rape her, then you can make her your wife. I mean, this is the craziest stuff. This is why they don't teach the book of Deuteronomy in Bible study. Because it'll blow your mind. I want nothing to do with those psychopathic crazy people. They're crazy. Lunatics. All right? All right. Yeah. TJ Princiata. Princiata. How do we get different nationalities? Good question. So what happened here is very interesting. So if you look at the um, if you look at the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, you find out that he's got this crew that gets on this ship and takes off into the sky and eventually goes into space. How do we know this? Because it says he gets into the great ship of the master and he ascends into the sky until beneath him, the land begins to disappear. And then even the planet disappears. Where is he going? He's going into space. Or he's going through a portal or something. He gets to the place appointed, it says, and then he starts to descend, coming down. He can see the temples beneath him. He's in the ship. In this ship, he's got a crew. This crew is a crew that he's going to have spread out around the planet and start rebuilding civilizations after this great flood. So first they go to the land of Kem. They rebuild Kem. Once they get done building Kem, he tells his people, I want you to spread out around the planet and duplicate what we did here. These people were multiracial people. They came from all different places, different stars and just different planets. They looked different, even though they were all hominid of some type they all look different now how did they make their mark on us and even in uh in lil known as yahweh in the bible he put a mark on cain they put a genetic marker on cain they put a genetic marker on human beings too in other regions whoever was ruling over africa or the place of the black people they put a genetic marker on the people whoever ruled over uh, the, the the Americas, the, the land of the, you know, the North and South Americas, they put a genetic marker on the people. Now, depending on how they look, they made the people look almost like them. Let us make man in our image. They made the red man look red. They made the black man look black. They made the uh, they made the, the white man look white. They made, you know, the Asian man look Asian. How do they do all this? Well, biology. Caucasian, uh, uh, an indigenous Native American, uh, you know, an Eastern Indian. It's not through natural evolution. It's not through Darwinian's mindset, our evolution, because mainstream biologists and scientists, they said the only way this can happen, it would take multi-millions of years, and we've only been here for 200,000. What does that tell you? Well, according to the Sumerian tablets, about 200,000 years ago is when they made the genetic modification to the hominid creating Adamu, first man, which is Homo sapiens sapien. So modern science finally agrees with ancient text. And what did they do? <laughs> they literally created people, Homo sapiens sapien, but they put a genetic marker on them depending on where they were ruling over them in the, on the earth. So they people would know, oh, those are his people. Oh. 
you know, those are, you know, those, those, those are his people over there. We can't mess with those people. So whoever they were ruling over, they made them look like them. And so that's where we get this genetic variance of 2% to make the different races. It was done by design. Scientists admit it's an artificial uh, mutation. In other words, it was done on purpose. They just can't figure out how or who. Well, we know who is in the Sumerian tablets. Very simple. Yeah. Right on. Thanks for telling the truth, man. This in two ways. One way is some of the people that came here were giants already who came here from another planet. If you look at the tablets, some of these people were super massive. And you can find the Anunnaki in texts from all over the world, even if they have various or variations of their name. Even the Bible calls them the Anak. In the Anak, it says, we were like grasshoppers in their eyesight. That's how big these Anak were. Some of these beings were up as much as 35 feet tall. Massive super beings, okay? Huge. They came from another planet that was larger than Earth. Now, over time, through mating and through genetic modifications and everything else, the size kept shrinking, 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 shrinking all the way down. But when they made it with America, with uh, human women, something amazing happened. That genetic marker for giantism was still there, and so they would have birth, they would give birth to men that would grow into giants. And there were two types of giants. One were the giants that had high levels of intelligence uh, and were given the, the, um, the birthright of understanding high levels of technology as well. And then you had another kind of giant that came out in certain areas where mating was, was slim and there was incest going on, giants mating with giants, but, uh, but there wasn't enough genetic uh, variance and so there was incest, and so the, their offspring became giants, but they became mutated giants. They became, you know, um, mentally mentally disabled, uh, physically disabled, some born with one eye, and all these other weird deformalities. And so you had two types of giants that came into play, okay? Those were the two. Some were called the Nephilim, the sons of God. Masenzi, Casiago, Jacobi. Does the creator have a name? Yeah, whatever name that you want to give the creator. I don't believe that the creator is a is a is a is a, is a hominid. In other words, I don't believe the creator could be uh, given a gender like a man, like he. You hear a lot of people who say he, him. They refer to uh, the creator as a as a man, where everyone comes out of a womb. So just for me, that logically doesn't even make any sense. Uh, but uh, I believe that the, that the creator is a frequency. And I believe that the face of God is the flower of life. That is the face of God. You want to see the face of God? You want to look at the face of God? Look at the flower of life. That is the face of God. And what emanates from the intersecting circles in the flower of life? The Vesica Pisces. It is actually the frequency known as the divine spark. That divine spark is part of God, and that divine spark emanates and permeates everything that is in the third dimension, including every atom in your body, fulfilling it and, and, and filling it up with that divine spark and the divine energy, making you also. Hey there, I just found Billy Carson's live sessions. Uh, sending a man to the hospital. 
guys know you're not supposed to be drinking outside in public? Yeah. Oh, Answering a lot of questions and huh. Um, how about four BK? Forbidden lot forbidden four BK TV. Four BK dot I follow myself. March for our lives. Ooh. There's some interesting people to to follow. By the way, uh, shout out to welcome back to the Christopher Governator Show and shout out to the students at the University of Aridstona here in To Stoned Aridstona and KPYT Pasquayaki Tribal Radio on the res with Trista Show. Anyway, March for Our Lives, Tohono Odom. Awesome, awesome, excuse me, entrepreneur stories from Guadalupe. Let's see all. What are their interesting? Tea Party of Scottsdale. ERA in Arizona. Indivisible of Arizona. Private group. 1.3K. Oops. My email address. Uh, south western part of the state, or south, south, Tucson, southwest Tucson, um, Okay, contested primaries. Posts about candidates and contested primaries are not permitted. Not contested. 
Please choose your own page to promote candidate events and news and contested summons. Focus on Arizona. Okay. Individual sounds, sounds uh, reasonable. Holly Amory Education and Support. Truly beloved. <laughs> uh, one friend is a member. Hmm. LD Southern Arizona. Oh, oh, no, no, no. I don't want to. No. Arizona Nightlife Events. Educators and Allies. Southwest Foraging. Wow, that sounds fucking interesting. Arizona's All Things Gardening. Education Experience and Exchange. Sounds wonderful. What city and state? It's starting to rain again. Okay. Um. Whoa. Ayo. Arizona Dams. Only 5,000 members. DCS Law and Policy Community. Where's DCS? Department of Child Safety. Okay. Whoa, what the fuck was that? Save Fourth Avenue. What's why is this mission is to rally folks together in order to preserve the unique identity of the historic Fourth Avenue. Community info police scanner. Gila River events. Indigenizing ash. What is that? Interesting. Okay, uh, what does that mean? Montana. Our sacred mice, our mother. That sounds nice. Okay. She's unaware. Team of partners. Southern Arizona Mental Health Providers.
on Autumn Gathering, 1.6k. Community Bulletin Board and Veil. got a trick question on here. What road connects Vale and Rita Ranch? Gee. Okay, I think I'm just going to exit here. He sees Stand Indivisible, Arizona. Ooh, Tona Otham Nation, nice. Uh, Barrio Historico Neighborhoods. Moran Events and Festivals, nice. Buy Nothing Tucson, nice. Cool. Come on, Tristan, this is a boring podcast. Organic Desert Gardeners of Maricopa County. That sounds pretty cool. They asked me what my favorite plant to grow was. Skeets can be so lovely. Arizona Blue 2020 Dream Act Coalition. Bugs and stuff of the Southwest. Um. New Pasqua community, hmm, interesting. Trying to live in the new Pasqua community? Uh, yeah, I think so.
Ayahuasca, the Spirit Vine, 20K followers. Do you agree to not post anything related to the sale or export of ayahuasca or other psychedelics? Yes. Okay. Well, I agree to the group rules. How to go in your local. Mm. Okay. Ongoing or regular presence here. Okay. Exit. Tempe parents and allies united. Butterflies and moss, Arizona. Okay, sounds cool. Mm, DK dressmaker, county deputy, registrar's march, honors and spirit women's march. Human rights, nice. Uh, I don't know if uh, Bernie Kratz activists, 9k members, local rule, 36 went to Berkeley, Navajo and Hopi virtual marketplace, join, Pachanga, what's the pioneering online news resource for Indian country, mm, interesting, Pachanga, Indivisible Sedona, Plymouth County Watchdog, an activist group dedicated to educating and informing taxpayers regarding the financial health of Pima County, Citizens Arizona, private, most important office is in our democracy, citizen, President Barack Obama, quoting Louis Brandeis, Brandeis. It's a private group. Uh, Snoring Desert Wildlife. That sounds cool. No locations other than birds, no nest sites. No selling carnage, dead or handling of venomous. Drex pat, what the hell is that? But ranging, decorating, and living in FS housing. 
with FS Housing, EK Entertainment, what does that stand for? What's PK? Oh, Bedroom Candy? Okay, Cornerstone Family BK, Grown Folk. Mmm, maybe it's a place. Anyway, Trista, this is probably the most boring podcast you've ever done. Go to 4bk.tv. Egyptian Mystery School. Oh my god, this stuff looks awesome. I'm going to add to home screen. Okay, this looks freaking great. Okay, you guys still there? Yes, you are. Hi, darlings. Yes. I cover all the pro-democracy podcasts, and I also cover Daya and uh, ancient history. I'm interested in pre-Diluvian, before the flood, Atlantean uh, history or uh, information, and... uh, Egypt and um, thought Osiris, all the I'm doing, I'm researching um, them, and I'm actually as an artist, I'm going to be painting, doing a lot of painting of the Egyptians, Egyptian so-called gods. Ah. It's a way to study. I um. I was on my way to become an underwater archaeologist. I was in uh, Taiwan for 14 years as an educator, English, ESL, and working for the newspapers as a writer, features, travel writer, and news, and copy editor, and foreign community page editor so let's uh let's do this thing then let's find a let's find one of these things okay jordan maxwell's influence on occulted hollywoods okay let's do this start a free trial okay okay Oh, shit. 
you have to um sign up which I don't feel like doing right now, but I'll, I will do that later. Tony Michaels, let's go for some more Tony Michaels then. <laughs> eh. Um, now, Trista, why don't you go go to another Q&A session on his page? Okay. Um, Billy Carson. Forbidden knowledge for a new age of Billy Carson. I already, oh man, see all. Forbidden knowledge, Billy Carson knowledge. 22 hours ago, it's only 28 seconds. Conversations. These are so old. Sort by date. Most recent. Ooh, first annual ancient civilizations concert. It's only fucking one minute long. Shit. Are you shitting me? These are just trailers. I want something long. Here we go. Anunnaki gods. Consciousness, energy vampires, that sounds, oh, that's only a minute long, for fuck's sake. No, I want it like an hour. Okay, let's go for this. I get to be the DJ. Okay, we're going for the mind-blowing stuff. That's an hour long. Paul Wallace and Billy Carson, Anunnaki gods, consciousness, and holographic consciousness. We understand it. We'll stop falling for the divide and conquer tactics. We'll stop falling for the poly tricks and all the other things that go along with these financial matrices and these religious systems. And once all that begins to fall away because of elevated ascended consciousness, we will then begin to treat each other with unconditional love and we will then bond and pair together. And we will do one simple thing to end this whole regime of oligarchs, is just we'll stop participating in their game. I believe right now that there are beings walking amongst us, and you would never even know you were sitting down next to or talking to a person that wasn't even of this world. That's a cool premise for a movie. Billy Carson is known around the world as a teacher of esoteric knowledge, a researcher of ancient wisdom, and the CEO of ForbiddenKnowledge.com. He's the author of the best-selling compendium of the Emerald Tablets, and woke doesn't mean broke, and is a familiar face on Gaia TV. His research into ancient wisdom traditions makes him a sought-after speaker at summits and conferences around the world. Yeah, he's great. Billy Carson, welcome to Fucking the Fiskine. Hey, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor to be on your show. It's a great pleasure to have you with us. 
we are really only going to be able to scratch the surface of all, all that you're into in this conversation because Well, for me, it goes all the way back to 1977, believe it or not. So in 1977, my family moved from New York to Miami, Florida. And so we moved to, in this city called Opalaka, and there's an airport in Opalaka called the Opalaka Airport. It's a small private airport. And I would go out in the backyard and watch the planes go over. And so it, to me, it was amazing to see planes appear to be moving slow, even though I knew oh, in my shit, mind they had I to think move, move, moving pretty before. fast because Fuck. how would they stay in the air? Well, this one day when I was outside doing this, this object came across and it wasn't round like a flying saucer or a UFO, uh, typical shape. It was more elongated, but not like a cigar, just like a very elongated, a stretched out um, oval. And it was really shiny uh, and like gleaming what I could think. I thought at the time looked like shiny metal. I don't really know what it was. And it went across the sky. It cleared the horizon in seconds, not minutes. And right away, I was like, whoa, what did I just see? And then it came back, and it stopped much lower. Maybe now I can estimate about 200 meters above my head. Completely silent. And then the next thing you know, gone. The way that it came back in, completely silent. And even as a kid, at the age of seven, I knew it didn't have a cockpit. It didn't have a tail. It didn't have wings. It didn't have a fuselage. I knew what I saw was not an airplane. So the next day I went to the uh, Rainbow Park Elementary School where I was going to school, four houses down from my house. I went straight to the library. And I pulled out all the Encyclopedia Britannicas on aerospace. And I literally have started researching from 1977 to this current day. Aerospace is where I got started looking into the original Google, the Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> Yes, that's right. And had anything like that happened within your family before? Were you the first in the Carson family to have a close encounter of that kind? Wow, that's a good question. Nobody's ever asked that question. <laughs> so there is a situation that did occur that I found from my aunt, uh, who unfortunately, bless her heart, just died in 2020. She passed away from cancer. Uh, now, my aunt was much older and lived in London, actually, most of her life. She left uh, in her teenage years to go to London to become... A TV star. She actually accomplished that. She was in James Bond. She was in uh, some soap operas and a few other shows and movies. Uh, but she oh, was kind of so disconnected cool. from the family uh, on this side for quite a while. It's only see her on the holidays. She didn't have the internet. She didn't have cell phones. And right before she passed away on her deathbed, she wanted to tell me something that was very interesting. My mom passed away four, uh, 13 years prior to her. And she said that I want to tell you something about what happened with myself and your mother. When we were kids growing up in St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands, uh, these, she didn't say aliens, but she said these advanced beings took us away. And, uh, you know, from there, there's this place there from there we're standing. And we're standing at this place that has these giant, I don't know, megalithic stones or granite stones, what I can imagine, which was trying to explain how big these stones were. And at that location is where they were taken away for a few hours and then brought back. I found it to be pretty interesting for somebody to tell me that on their deathbed. She didn't know I was forbidden knowledge. She doesn't know anything about my TV shows, you know, Instagram, none of that kind of stuff. And I thought that was pretty interesting for her to want to share that with me, you know, while she's passing away. Absolutely. The reason I ask that question is that a lot of people, when they come to me and report their own experiences, 
they're trying to process. I'll say, did your mom or dad have an experience like this? And they'll say, oh, no, I don't think so. I think they'd have told me. And then about a week later, they'll call me back and say, actually, I talked to my dad. <laughs> and he said, well, since you ask, son, I'll tell you what happened to you when I was 15 years old. So there's often a longer story. Yeah. But you mentioned that the impact for you of that experience was that it turned you really into a researcher. Mm -hmm. yeah. You began at the technology end of the spectrum. At some point, you have joined the dots with other fields of study and other academic disciplines, and you discovered the ancient world of Mesopotamia. Right. Can you tell me how you discovered that tradition and how it tied in with your technological uh, interests? Sure, definitely. It's really <laughs> it's a crazy story. So as I began to study uh, the technology, you know, I looked into delta wings, swept wings, ballistics. Um, I was looking to, you know, uh, hypersonic, supersonic. I went to all the different aspects of aerospace that I could find. I couldn't find anything that looked like what I saw. And so, but I continued to study and research because now this whole field of aerospace had really captured my, my soul and my heart. And I became dedicated to it. So I kind of became a quasi aerospace historian over many years as of just growing up. I was just obsessed with it. And much later on in life, I was working on a project where I was, um, you know, uh, well, let me talk first. First, I was looking out, out into space with my satellite, with my telescope. And with my telescope, I started researching the procession of the equinoxes. The procession of the equinoxes and the speed in which the procession moves, uh, I realized that the 27,000 years is really more like 25,000 years. And I was trying to figure out what would cause this speeding of a of procession, of the movement of the stars across the constellations across the sky. And I started looking into orbital mechanics. And when I started looking into orbital mechanics, I realized in order for our sun to move faster and slower, it must be orbiting something. So I started hypothesizing that maybe we are orbiting uh, another large rogue planet, or maybe even orbiting another star. And come to find out, our sun is actually orbiting a brown dwarf star, which is now peer-reviewed science. This is actually yes. kind of changed all the astrophysics books. And so that got me to that whole realm of, you know, looking into space. And now, during this process, I realized there were cataclysms that were being caused on Earth around this orbital cycle of this intertwining of the gravitational fields of the stars, creating havoc throughout the entire solar system. And so I realized, okay, let me start this project. I wanted to build an underground shelter. So I built this underground city is what it turned out to be. Uh, it's a, the size of three Walmarts underground. It's in Northwest Georgia. It, I was on the History Channel because of this. This is one of the first times I made TV in 2012 because of this giant project I was working on, a $20 million project. Now, the, the significance of this is during the time that I was working on this project and it was getting all this notoriety around the, the world, uh, all of a sudden, I was in my house one day after a long day's work working on this specific project, and all the lights in my uh, in my family room went dim. They turned lavender. The TV I was watching went off. I was watching ESPN. It was I wasn't tired yet. It was only like 9 p.m. I looked over my left shoulder to see if my boys were playing a trick on me, a prank. No boys on that side. Nothing going on. But when I turned my head back around, two what I can only say to you would be the typical gray aliens were right in my face within inches of my face. And I'm sitting down on a chair much about this same height, so they must have been no more than four feet, four and a half feet max. Um, their eyes, I still can't tell if they were really eyes or if it was some type of apparatus. It was very strange. They didn't give me any telepathic communication, but what happened for me, at least, uh, was that my brain literally started shaking in my skull. 
I tried to scream. No sound was coming out. There were people in the house. My, at that time, I was actually married. My wife was home. She heard nothing. My, my girls on the other side heard nothing. My kids heard nothing. My boys heard nothing. And then it, just as fast as it started, it stopped. And they kind of, they don't really have a walking gait like a human, but they kind of dangled or bounced away. And they went through the wall. The lights came back. The TV came back. And I was completely shocked. shocked. I was torn up. It scared the heck out of my family. It took years for me to start talking about this because it was actually one of the catalysts for my divorce. <laughs> so I, I gained nothing out of this, um, mm. and I saw I sought no popularity from it either. But that interesting event did something special, how I got into ancient civilizations. After this happened, the phrase worldwide telescope was burnt to my brain. It just kept playing over and over and over and over again. Worldwide telescope, worldwide telescope, nonstop. To the point where, where it was like hundreds of times, I went to my computer, and back then Google was just competing still with all, all the other search engines. So I went to Excite.com and I typed in Worldwide Telescope. It's still in business till this till this very day. WorldwideTelescope.org is the first thing that popped up on the search result. I almost fell out of my chair. I click on it, it takes me to a website where I can access all the space probe data from all the missions ever sent into space. And the first one I see is, I say, okay, let me click on Mars. And then I go, oh, panoramas. Let me click on that. Then it gave me Spirit Rover. It gave me Opportunity Rover. Uh, and it gave me all these different areas that the, the rovers were in. So I clicked on uh, Opportunity. And I go in there, and I'm looking around. I'm in Myrtle Valley. And, other, and I start seeing anomalies, things that don't appear to be like they, they, they don't appear to be rocks. And they don't, they shouldn't be where they were. And that's what got me into anomaly hunting. But the things I saw look like things from ancient civilizations on earth and i'm like wait a minute whoa is this real and the more i researched i found out it was real and these images weren't obfuscated and still aren't obfuscated yet on that particular um access to the, the space probe data and so i started making a correlation between ancient civilizations and these space anomalies and i started hypothesizing could these anunnaki beings or these atlantean people have been an interplanetary civilization uh, and could they be connected? And that's what I came to find out. My total hypothesis is that, yes, they are the same people. Yes, they are connected. And yes, they were on different planets and moons in this solar system. Wow, there's so much in your answer there. I want to flag one thing you mentioned in passing, that experiencing a close encounter, as you described there, a close encounter of the fourth kind, is a very isolating experience. Yeah. It, it yeah. doesn't help anyone to have an yeah. experience like that. It doesn't give you an advantage to get a better job or improve your relationships, quite the reverse. So I thank you for mentioning that part of the story. You were well ahead of the curve in terms of recognizing these anomalies in the images from Mars. Everyone's talking about it now, what are we seeing on the surface now, and beginning to talk about how it relates to previous civilizations. What was it that you found in the ancient cuneiforms that told you that what you were reading about there had a relationship with what you were seeing on the surface of Mars? Yeah, a great question. I started looking in, into the Sumerian tablets. Originally, I came across the work of Zachariah Sitchin, uh, which before he was being ridiculed and, and everything else, and I realized that he was giving the location of his sources for his where, where he got his ideas. People think that he made all this stuff up. No, he was using source material and I found that he was using material that was already translated long yes. before he was born. I said, holy crap, this stuff is not what people think. you got to read these tablets. So I said, how can I find these tablets? 
I got into the Enuma Elish and the Seven Tablets of Creation, and I also got into the Epic of Atrahasis. Both of them tell an incredible tale of the creation of the solar system, as well as the explosion of Tiamat, how Earth was formed from the remnants of Tiamat, how the asteroid built formed, and also how there were beings that came to this solar system after it kind of healed and recoalesced. They created a breakaway civilization on Earth, and they also had a civilization running concurrently on Mars. And the people that were working these breakaway civilizations, doing the hard, harder labor, were the working class Anunnaki people. They call them the Ijiji in the Sumerian cuneiform tablets, the Ijiji. And these people were doing the work and the labor, and they were coming back and forth to and fro from Earth to Mars on a consistent basis. The point you made there that I think is really important is that Zechariah Sitchin was working off translations that were widely accepted yeah. concerning the meaning of the ancient cuneiforms. As you say, it wasn't Sitchin who was creating this uh, interplanetary storyline. It was there in the tablets. So how do you think it is that that information had lain dormant for so long? until Zechariah Sitchin came along and said, hey, everybody, do you realize what this means? Yeah, you know, what happened was the story is so incredible and so mind-blowing, the average person can't wrap their mind around a civilization that could be potentially one million years ahead of us technologically, but that occurred, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. So it's hard for us because we have such, we're, human beings are such egotistical beings, it's hard to wrap our mind around that. So the tab is kind of just, uh, fell to the wayside. They really weren't oppressed or suppressed in any kind of heavy way, to be honest with you. As a matter of fact, I think that a lot of Hollywood producers had gotten their hands on some of these tablets and started utilizing them yes. to create things like Star Wars and Star Trek and all these other star and space type films, taking pieces of them and adding their own creativity to it to create their own masterpieces out of them. Uh, and it's like, look, nobody's reading these tablets. We'll use this to make these great movies. And it worked. And then all of a sudden, Zachariah's sister stumbled, you know, he stumbles across a few of these tablets and starts realizing, wow, there's a lot here. And he reawakened everyone to the fact that these tablets are real, they exist, and they're fully accessible. Matter of fact, the entire cuneiform library is available on UCLA, uh, the UCLA CDLI cuneiform online digital library, when anybody can go there for free, grab a stone yeah. off the shelf, and drop it right into a translator digitally, and decode it and read it for themselves. We had to know something at theological college when I was training to be a minister about the Mesopotamian literature because it's pretty clear that they are the source documents for the stories we're familiar with in the Bible. And I found what happened to us is that this was sort of noted and then you handed your list of essays to write for your degree and, and you pick a different topic yeah. and you never go back to the implications of, hold on, what does it mean that many of our God stories are based on stories of ET contact? Right. And it really was, for me, just a matter of time of joining the dots, having the time to go back and say, wait a minute, what does that mean? Yeah. What relationship do you find between the religions that we're familiar with that have grown up on planet Earth and our ancestors' experience of ET contact? Oh, man, great question. You see, the ancients, our ancestors, they're telling us exactly what happened. If anyone understands how hard and difficult it is to write in cuneiform onto clay and let it dry and become stone, 
It's a tedious process. You don't sit around underneath a tree and say, you know, I'm going to wedge out job. about two or three hundred of these stone tablets so I can make up an amazing story. I mean, I mean it just didn't happen that way. You got to work to do. You got to you got to toil the fields and get food on the table. So this was important information, probably as close to the truth as we're possibly going to get. And what I found is that when you look into these ancient texts and scriptures and cylinder scrolls and papyruses, you're finding out the fundamental basis of what religion is right now. They've taken, taken from pieces of these texts, the Enuma Elish in the Seventh Tablets of Creation, the Epic of Atrahasis, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is primarily the, story, the full story of Noah, and the, and the Enuma Elish, you get the creation story, uh, you get separating the waters from the waters and all of that stuff, right? Yes. And then you also get uh, into the some of the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which makes it into some of the Old Testament and Proverbs. You, you get some of the Mahabharata, and there are even some of the Bhagavad Gita. And then in the Newer Testament, you're getting, uh, where Jesus is speaking, you're getting a lot of the Emerald Tablets of Thoth from 36,000 years ago. Jesus was just regurgitating what he learned in the mystery schools when he went to Egypt at the age of 12. So it's pretty interesting that the, the, the powers that be, they handpicked different pieces of information to create this canonized Bible. Uh, and and really, when you look into some of these ancient texts, you go, well, how come their names aren't in this book? Look, Marduk. Marduk is in the Sumerian cuneiform tablets, which predates the Bible by thousands of years. He's in the Bible, and he's in the Torah. All these names, they're in there. Enlil, and all these, they're all in these texts, but it's just been kind of overlooked. And these are the same people that masqueraded as gods, plural with an S, in these books, which then, uh, due to the process of editing, they took the S off of the word God and made it singular to usher in the monotheistic mindset. But in the original translation, it's gods with an S. And it's actually multiple gods being spoken about in the Bible, not just one. These are these Anunnaki Atlantean people that were battling for, uh, you know, cr control of humans and resources on Earth. You and I are absolutely on the same page uh, in all that regard. You have a massive following around the world who, when you say things like that, will say, yeah, go, Billy. But do you still find you get a lot of pushback from the religious world when you come out and present this information? Yeah, this pushback is always, you know, people that, that want to challenge because they're so wrapped into the religion because they've been born and they've been given the name race and they were given their religion right at birth. And so now they're spending the rest of their life trying to defend, trying to defend a false identity. And so they're so encased and engulfed in it that there's like being immersed inside of a hologram. You can't tell you're in a hologram because you're inside of it. And so they're immersed in that matrix of that religious matrix, and they can't even find a way that there could be a, a slight way out. And they're so yeah. immersed in it, they believe it's their, it's their whole being, and it makes up their complete belief system. Identity. And so once you start to tear down a person's belief system, it puts them in psychological and sometimes physiological pain, and they yes. become they move from a they move from a, a prisoner to a prison guard mindset, and now they want to guard that identity. Uh, you yeah. know, so human beings are both the prisoners and we're also the prison guards. Mm. So this is the Agent Smith syndrome. Yes, that's right. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> Your best-selling title, Compendium of the Emerald Tablets, takes us into the world of ancient. Egyptian mythology. Can you tell me what those tablets are and why they are important? Oh, wow. These tablets are the most amazing things I've ever come across in a long time. About now, almost 11 years ago, I came across the Emerald Tablets of Thoth 
These are ancient writings that were authored and written by Thoth himself. Thoth is a Atlantean, he claims to be an Atlantean priest king, a son of Atlantis that ruled over the land of Kem long before it was called Egypt, or he ruled over Kem for 14,000 years. Now that, that's even according to the ancient Egyptians that etched into stone in Egypt, so you can't deny that the ancients uh, agree with this. Uh, and what's interesting is um, he was known as the the, 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 the first intelligencer, the person that brought knowledge and wisdom, languages to the planet. Uh, in the land of chems, he taught chemistry and alchemy, and he alchemically created these tablets, which he uh, put on this emerald green type stone. Uh, and, and these tablets are really giving you the key, not only to life, enlightenment, how to ascend to higher dimensions. Uh, he's talking about technology in there, flying ships that can fly into space, He's talking about weapons that can stun people and freeze them in their tracks. He's talking about having the power to transfer consciousness into a cloned avatar body. He's even talking about walking through stargates. It's like an amazing space story combined with, uh, you know, an amazing empathetic story about how one being decided to put a crew together and fly around Earth after the Great Flood and help re-kickstart civilization for humans all over the planet. Now, you describe him as an Atlantean, an Anunnaki. What exactly do you think Thoth was? Great question. So, the Anunnaki is a generalized term. So, like, for example, if we were to leave Earth and go to Mars, and we met some people on Mars that were Martians, they would say, well, who are you? What are you guys? Well, we're Earthlings, right? But I'm really a Floridian from Florida in America. So you can break it down to levels. And so, Anunnaki just means uh, those who came from heaven to Earth. But the Atlantean was the name of the actual civilization. They had this Atlantean civilization that not was just not was just not a ring city that Plato talked about. That's where people get a little confused that they go, oh, there was this place called Atlantis. No, Earth was Atlantis. The entire planet. We're all yeah. right now, wherever you are on this planet, you're sitting on top of Atlantis. It was a civilization. It was a civilization of global. It, we had capitals. That ring city that sunk in the Atlantic Ocean was one of many capitals of Atlantis, and they were also interplanetary. They weren't just on Earth. Going back to Thoth for a moment, when we find him depicted uh, in the Annals of Ancient Egypt, he's depicted with the head of an ibis. How do we read that? Is that symbology, or did people simply paint what they saw? Thank you for asking. That's symbology that. for Thoth, and the reason why is because an ibis bird, uh, it's, uh, it, it has its very long beak. Now, the way that it gets its sustenance, it has to stick its beak deep into mud. So the ibis bird sticks its beak deep into mud to get its food, to bring up sustenance. And so it's an uh, allegory of kind of bringing darkness to light is why they give him the, the, yeah. the head of the ibis bird. So it's not really his face. His face actually used to be on the Sphinx. The original face on the Great Sphinx in Egypt was not the face that's there now, and it was never a lion's face. It was Thoth's face. His father, Enki, ordered it to be his face. After after Thoth and his brother, Marduk, also known as Amun-Ra, got into a couple of battles, and Thoth's dad said, look, man, go to the other side of the planet and stop that Mesoamerican civilization over there and leave your brother over here. And so once he left, his brother recarved the face, which is why that head of Thoth now is too small. He recarved the face of Thoth down to his own son's face. So the head that's on the Great Sphinx now is Thoth's nephew's face. But you can see quite easily that these are human features. Anyone familiar with Doctor Who is familiar with the idea of a 
sort of a great tutor to humanity, someone who's here to assist humanity's progress and a being that can incarnate in a succession of human avatar You guys body. are still there. 25 minutes into this. Yes, you are. Hi there. <clears throat> Checking. <laughs> that was pretty awesome. I want to hear that again. With the head of an ibis. How do we read that? Is that symbology or did people simply paint what they saw? That's symbology for folk. And the reason why is because an ibis bird, uh, it's, uh, it, it has its very long beak. Now, the way that it gets its sustenance, it has to stick its beak deep into mud. So the ibis bird sticks its beak deep into mud to get its food, to bring up sustenance. And why didn't so they it's an uh, allegory for kind of bringing darkness to light is why they give him the, the, yeah. the head of the ibis bird. So it's not really his so face. His like? face actually used to be on the Sphinx. The original face on the Great Sphinx in Egypt was not the face that's there now, and it was never a lion's face. It was both faces. Father Enki ordered it to be his face after after Thoth and his brother Marduk, also known as Amun-Ra, got into a couple of battles. And Thoth's dad said, "Look, man, go to the other side of the planet and start that Mesoamerican civilization over there, and leave your brother over here." And so once he left, his brother recarved the face, which is why that head that's on there now is too small. He recarved the face of Thoth down to his own son's face. So the head that's on the Great Sphinx now is Thoth's nephew's face. But you can see quite easily that these are human features. Hmm. Anyone like. familiar with Doctor Who is familiar Who's with the idea like? of a sort of a great Billy, can you tell us what to humanity. Someone human avatar bodies and that's how you describe Thoth. Tell us a bit more about that idea and what that means for how long Thoth was on planet Earth with us. And he has this thing called the Halls of Amenti and so the Halls of Amenti is this amazing place that I believe I discovered one of them in Egypt which I'm going back again to document it even more in October of this year. Uh, there were there's many Halls of Amenti. The one I found I believe is his father's Enki or Ptah. But the one that he used was underneath the Great Pyramid. Now, what's interesting is about three and a half, no, four and a half years ago now, they found these halls underneath the Great Pyramid. They're all empty now, but these are these giant halls that were engineered, and they go on for miles. Pretty interesting. Now, in these halls, he had this these chambers. He called them rejuvenation chambers, and he would actually create bodies or create these avatar bodies, not from cloning other people, but actually creating his own clones. How the particular process or technique, nobody really knows. But then what he would do is he would transfer his consciousness into one of these avatar bodies. He said he would walk amongst men, but unlike a man. You wouldn't even know that he was walking around in this bodysuit, basically. And then while he uh, was doing that, other bodies that he had already used in the past were being put back into these different chambers that he had, had many of them. And they would sit there for a hundred years. So every hundred years, he'd go back and hop in a new body. He's done that 10 times a hundred. I mean, the guy, that's just 10,000 years alone right there. But if you look at the time frame in between that he waits to go and get another body and add it all together, it's, it's getting close to a hundred thousand years. We're talking about beings that have discovered a way of obtaining immortality by transferring their consciousness, which is what we're doing right now.
in Russia, they transferred a monkey's consciousness with the 2045 project mm. into a computer. The monkey's body is gone dead. The monkey is still alive in the computer. And by 2045, they want to be able to do that with humans. A human, take a cell, a, a cell from a human, turn it into a stem cell, which they can do now, then clone your body to the age specified with no disease in it, then transfer your consciousness into that new avatar body. Uh, so it's pretty interesting that we're getting to that level. So we're kind of rediscovering what already happened in the ancient past. Indeed. I was going to ask, uh, you talked about the idea of Thoth walking among humans without being spotted, moving around inconspicuously. Do you believe that that relates to our experiences today? Do we have company from elsewhere in the cosmos or from other dimensions that we're not spotting because it's moving around inconspicuously? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a good show that just came out on Amazon Prime. It's called The Man That Fell to Earth. It's a, it's a remake of an old classic. And what I like about this remake is they really put a great spin on it. And you can see that this alien being from another planet coming here to look for technology to help his home planet that he could create over there. But he's walking around in a humanoid suit. In other words, the skin and everything else that, that's on his body that makes him look human is actually his spacesuit. And so it's pretty, there's so many, I like the way that they kind of twist, you know, he's not walking around in something tech, that appears to be technological, it looks yes. biological. And so I believe right now that there are beings walking amongst us, completely cloaked in these uh, human humanoid bodysuits, uh, and able to speak and interact, and you would never even know you were sitting down next to or talking to a person that wasn't even of this world. Uh, and just like we do when we go to the wilderness, like you see on a National Geographic uh you know, a show where we go out into the wilderness and we begin to hide in these, what they call hides, and we, we videotape these animals and we, we put in, hidden cameras inside of their den so we can check them out. We want to monitor them and watch how they live and how they thrive or don't thrive. And then we even alien abduct these animals by shooting them with a dart, tranquilizing them. Now they have lost time. We take them away to a laboratory. We, we take fluids from them. We inject an alien tracking device in them. We put them back in the wild. It's the same thing happening to us. It is. It's exactly the same thing. It's a little bit lowering when you um, sort of wake up to the possibility that we might be some mid-ranking species in the great cosmic family. And it yeah. takes people a bit of adjusting to. But I've come to that conclusion, and I hear that echoed in ancestral narratives, world mythology from all around the world. Yeah. I want to go back to the technology question because... I've heard you speak a number of times on the amazing mathematical properties and correlations that relate to the Giza plane and the mathematics of the Great Pyramid of Giza. That tells us that pre-dynastic Egypt had advanced science and advanced technology. Can you say a little bit more about where that science came from and then where it went? Absolutely. So. What's interesting, when you look at the Great Pyramid and Giza Plateau, you begin to realize that it's an absolute architectural masterpiece. Now, what's interesting about the actual mathematics encoded into the Giza Plateau, surrounding temples, and also into the Great Pyramid and all the surrounding pyramids, it's a mathematical system that allows us to predict a lot of incredible things. For example, encoded into the Great Pyramid is the actual speed of the earth around the sun also encoded to the great pyramid is the speed of the sun around the galaxy i mean 
these are things that can't be coincidences. Uh, and you can also calculate based on the size of the pyramid stones themselves and the base. You can calculate things like the distance to the sun and the distance to the moon. You can even calculate an astronomical unit, an AU, which is a, uh, a, a space of measurement used to measure how far a planet is away from our yellow sun, an AU. And so that's all uh, uh, encoded in there. If you look at the Giza Plateau from the top down, from high level down, and you look at the surrounding pyramids and the temples, I have a great animated video that shows you when you connect lines in a specific way, you create this pattern that allows you to make a complete to scale image of the interplanetary solar system. In other words, you have uh, Mercury, Venus, Mars, uh, Mercury, Venus, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and then Mars. And you have them down precise to scale to the astronomical unit and the sun directly in the middle. So Giza itself, the plateau, is actually a map of the interplanetary solar system that we have right here uh, where we live. Pretty interesting. And also the height of the Great Pyramid is the average height of all the landmass peaks on Earth. To do that, you need an orbiting polar satellite orbiting the planet this way and scanning the planet as it rotates on its axis so that you can take all the topographical data, you can calculate all the heights, count the total number of peaks, divide them by the average height, when you get that number, then you can build a pyramid to that height. The other thing is that the Great Pyramid is located at the direct center of landmass on Earth. Not the center of the Earth, the center of landmass, which means you need a polar orbiting satellite to calculate landmass and find that exact spot, boom, where to put the Great Pyramid. All this is encoded into the Great Pyramid, and it's there's so much more. I could talk for probably 10 hours on, on it. You can calculate the, the, the actual um, circumference of the sun. I mean, the numbers are, the amount of mathematics that are encoded into it is just incredible. The science of pre-dynastic Egypt really is mind-boggling. We've also got references, certainly in pictorial form, in the hieroglyphics, among the hieroglyphics, I should say, of ancient technology um, that was using sound to move enormous blocks, uh, things like that. What happened to that technology? Is it all... Buried in the vaults of the Smithsonian? Yeah. Well, some of it is in the okay. Smithsonian. Some of it is buried underneath the Vatican. I think the majority of things discovered that are left without being destroyed from just time are, are at the Vatican. A lot of people have to realize that these great pyramid structures and these ancient temples are all built out of stone. They were designed to last the test of time, but the technology that was inside of them uh, the handmade technologies that were put together and put inside them to use to work in conjunction with these energetic locations, that technology in a lot of cases was either taken away or over time it literally just turned back into dust, rusted away, turned into dust, just based on being exposed to the bare elements. Uh, and then whatever was discovered was then swiped away and taken away either to the Smithsonian, uh, the Vatican, and even some most likely, uh, some of the really deep, buried, incredible technologies taken away to different militaries so and space agencies for investigation and research into what they could have been. What I find interesting is that some of that technology is referenced <laughs> not only in the world of ancient Egypt, it's there in the Mesopotamian texts, it's there in the Bible as well, just a translation away from being blindingly obvious. Yeah. And in my research, I found this amazing fluid relationship between those three cultures, three traditions, three civilizations. Can you say a little bit about what you discovered and the connection between the biblical tradition around Moses and the world of ancient Egypt? Wow. 
the Moses uh, story is really an amazing story for a couple reasons. The first reason is if you really look at the story of Akhenaten, Pharaoh Akhenaten, you discover that there was an actually there was actually a Pharaoh. This Pharaoh was the father of Tutankhamun, Tutankhamun or King Tut as we call him. Uh, now, Akhenaten had a very elongated head, a very strange.